to our sermon text, go to the beginning of the Bible, Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. Today I'm going to beginning a, begin a new sermon series on the book of Genesis. As we return now to the Old Testament, having preached on 2 Peter most recently. Before I read this text, though, I wanted to give just a very brief introduction to the book of Genesis. In fact, if you go on to our sermon audio page, you can listen to the Sunday school lesson that I gave on the book of Genesis at the beginning of the Bible survey class if you wanted to review the whole book. But this is the first book of the Bible, recounting history of God's dealings with men and with his people um, from the beginning. There is a theme of blessing and curse, the blessing of creation, curse upon sin, and the restoration of blessing through his grace. And these things by means of covenant between God and man. There are two ways to outline the book. There is the first 11 chapters with a, a worldwide view, the history of the human race and heavens and the earth. And then chapter 12 starts to narrow in on Abraham and his offspring, although uh, they are chosen that they might uh, be a blessing to all the nations uh, in time. So the world is still in view as it recounts the history of Abraham and Isaac, and Jacob, and Joseph. Another way to structure it is that there are uh, 10 places throughout the book where it says these are the generations of uh, and uh, these are the generations of the heavens and the earth. These are the generations of Adam. And that phrase essentially means this is what became of, the, of him. So this is what became of that. Um, and it moves the story forward and introduces the next section. And so as you find that throughout the book, that's kind of the book's own um, structural marker, uh, bringing this book together. And there's, there's 10 of those throughout the book. It doesn't begin with that. Uh, it first is going to recount the creation of the world and God's rest on the seventh day. But then it's going to use that phrase to introduce, and this is what became of the heavens and the earth. These are the generations uh, of the heavens and the earth when they were created, chapter 2, verse 4, uh, moving on the story from that point. This book describes God's covenants. These covenants are founded on God's works. That's why it's going to begin with his works of creation, which is Fundamental to his covenant of works, or covenant of creation with Adam. But there's also his covenants of, of grace, which are also based upon him and his promises and his redemption. He binds his people to himself. He promises blessing of fellowship with God, offspring, land, worldwide blessing, themes that we'll find throughout this book. Finally, this book is a, a prelude to Exodus. Um, it is grouped together with the other five books of Moses, as Moses being, uh, it seems, the one who brought these things together, or who wrote this book as we uh, have it. And it would have reminded the people of Israel that the God of Israel, who was bringing them out of Egypt, that he was the creator of all the earth, which is why he put to shame all the gods of Egypt and Pharaoh himself, and that he is the faithful God of Abraham, being faithful to his covenant 
as he renewed that covenant with the people of Israel. So keeping those things in mind then as we go through the book of Genesis, let's begin with the first five verses of the book and of the Bible, Genesis 1, 1 through 5. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, Let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. God called the day light. Sorry, God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning. The first day. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Let us pray for God's blessing upon his word. Lord God, we thank you for revealing yourself and your mighty deeds in scripture. We pray that you would bless what we have read and heard for our growth and edification, for our conviction and for our growth and grace. We pray that you would help us to understand it, that it would be properly exposited and unfolded, that we might know you and to know you better. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Religions, philosophies, worldviews, all involve an account of origins, where things came from. That's a question that naturally arises. Where did we come from? Where did everything come from? The answer to this question shapes the rest of a person's thinking. It's a, it's a foundational point uh, for the rest of the uh, worldview. The Christian faith does not begin with uh, the cross, does not even begin with sin. It begins with the creation of all things by God. That's where our creed begins, right? Believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. This is where the Bible begins as well. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. If we neglect this doctrine of creation, it's going to more and more shrink uh, our faith and to, to distort and really to cut it off from its roots. What, what, what is sin? Why is sin bad? Why do we need salvation? It's all rooted in the sense that God is God. He is the creator of all things, and we owe our existence and obedience to him. The gospel makes sense against the backdrop of creation. Christian ethics only makes sense against the backdrop of creation. When, when Paul was going to proclaim the gospel to the Athenians, he spent most of his sermon speaking about doctrine of creation setting the true God against the false gods that were worshipped. If you neglect the doctrine of creation, there are other doctrines of creation or of origins that are more than happy to replace it. Like I said, it's a part of pretty much every religion and worldview out there. In every age, the message of Genesis concerning creation has come into conflict with the answers given by false religions and philosophies. In the days of ancient Israel, the Egyptians and the Assyrians had their own accounts of how things 
came about that reflected a very different view of the world, uh, where there were limited gods, diverse gods that struggled together and ended up making the world. Our age is no different in that there are conflicting accounts of this world and how it came about. You live amid competing worldviews based on competing accounts of origins. Has this world come about through blind, impersonal forces without purposes or directions, just leaving you on your own to create things as you go? Or was it brought about into being by the word of God, who is sovereign, who is wise, who is good? The Bible begins with the bold assertion of this truth. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The verses that I've just read, the first five verses, describe the first day, the very first day, the first day of creation. Before this day, before this beginning, God existed, and only God. God alone is from everlasting to everlasting, as Psalm 90 puts it. But in the beginning, God created heavens and the earth. These verses teach us that God created the heavens and the earth out of nothing. And secondly, that God created light, separating day from night. And so we'll look at those two points. God's creation of creation out of nothing and his creation of light, uh, separating the day from the night. So first, God created the heavens and the earth. Out of nothing. You look at verses 1 through 2. That's where we find this. God created the heavens and the earth. So that's basically a Hebrew way to say everything. Uh, That he he brought uh, things that are made into existence. Uh, He brought uh, everything besides himself. It would be, include both, likely includes both visible and invisible realms. Seems the heavens include the highest heaven and the angels, although we're not really given any specifics about their creation here. Uh, we learn more in Job 38.7, where the sons of God sing for joy in the sometime during creation of the world. And Colossians 1 speaks of how, how God made, through Jesus, he made all things visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or powers. It's best to take verse 1 here, um, not as a summary of everything that's going to take place, but as the first act of this first day. God's initial act of creation out of nothing at the beginning of that first day, resulting in the conditions described in verse 2. Created the heavens and the earth. What was the earth like? Well, before anything else happened, the earth was without form and void and darkness was over the face of the deep. It was formless. There weren't distinctions there. Things were all muddled together like a big blob. It was empty. It was not inhabited. It was not filled. And it was dark. There was no light. But this had been brought about, it had been created by God. And even in the darkness, it says that the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. I think this refers to his his being present there and him caring and sustaining for that creation, even as uh, formless and void as it was. 
brings to mind what is said of the Spirit in Psalm 139, verse 7. Where shall I go from your spirit, or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in shale, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me, and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me, and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. The psalm goes on to speak of how even in the darkness of the womb that God knit me together and put me together and gave me life. Likewise, the earth was dark, was hidden in darkness, formless and void, and yet God was at work. His spirit was present over the face of the waters. Creation is dependent on God and is sustained by his spirit. Beginning on that first day and then through the work of the six days, God would lighten that dark world. He would form that formless world. He would fill that void and empty world. His work was not complete yet. It will be completed at the end of the chapter. At the end of the six days, it says the heavens and the earth were finished. And all the host of them, there's now a host in the heavens and the earth. So this is the initial act. That will be a concluding summary. The final distinction that God will make, the final form that he gives it, will be to set apart a seventh day uh, from the other six by resting on it. So he will distinguish things, he will fill things, he will lighten things. Now one might say, why did God have to take so long? Of course, that's not usually the question that's asked today. Was the question that was asked in prior ages, why did God take so long when he could have just spoken everything into existence all at once? Well, it's not because he couldn't have done things faster. It seems to be for our sake that he spread this work over six days. For your example, we'll find that in the Ten Commandments, work six days and rest on the seventh but also to better display to you his wisdom, his power, and his sovereignty, that he has fit these things together, and that all of creation owes its existence to him. So the first two verses, we find that God created uh, the heavens and the earth, even though at first it's going to take some work. We find that God created all things out of nothing, bringing them into existence. Found this also in Psalm 33 that I read as the Old Testament passage. Even in the Old Testament, this fact is realized that He spoke and it came to be. Uh, that things were brought out of uh, nothingness which had not existed there before, and then it was there. Why? Because He simply said the words. His power and His authority was no struggle uh, for Him, but He spoke it into existence. The New Testament affirms this as well. By faith we understand, says Hebrews, that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. What's the invisible thing he's talking about? He's talking about the word, the word of God. Things were made. Or Revelation 4, worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. 
we learn that God created all things out of nothing. We also learn that God is distinct from all else. What makes God the true God and what makes him uh, separate and distinct? Uh, he is the creator, not the creature. It's one reason why the doctrine of creation shows up so much um, towards the end of Isaiah. As he is setting, Isaiah sets God apart from all the idols of the nations. They were going to go into exile. What makes him different? He is the one who made heaven and earth and the seas. He is the creator. And he is not created. God is not created, and creation is not God. There's no room for pantheism here. Um, there is no room for a birth of the gods, as you might have found in other pagan stories. Uh, but the work of creation identifies the true God as God. Not only that, but we find um, that the doctrine of creation is important for the doctrine of the Trinity. Uh, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit being one God, the true God, not a created being, we find because creation is, is ascribed to these three. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit are one being, and each is put on the creator side of the creator-creature distinction. The Spirit, I talked about this in my last sermon, his work in creation, the giver of life, find them even in verse 2. The New Testament is emphatic that the Father created all things by his Son, his eternal word and wisdom. In fact, it almost says as much about the Son's work in creation as it does uh, the Father. Although it's always through, by means of the Son. In John 1, we, for example, we saw all things were made through him. Colossians 1, by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. In fact, it says all things were created through him and for him. In Hebrews 1, verses 2 through 3, it speaks of his son through whom he created the world. And it speaks of how the son upholds the universe by the word of his power. So he is the word and he speaks the word. Uh, so by means of the son, we even find here in Genesis, though it's not very plain, uh, the first reading of Genesis says we learn more about the Son as he becomes manifest for our salvation, that he was at work here as well. The Father is the maker of heaven and earth by his word, Spirit, and the word there being the Son of God who spoke this word. When God said, let there be light. Now, we all already actually know that God is the creator of the world from the creation itself. <clears throat> Psalm 19 says that the heavens declare the glory of God, and the, the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Uh, the wisdom and power and divine nature of God are already evident in the things that are made, proclaiming their maker. They are made with design and purpose and power. But your sight is blurred by sin. We suppress that knowledge in unbelief until we are given by God of regeneration and scripture. Calvin compares scripture to spectacles. Our, our sight is blurred about the world around us. We don't see it right. We don't see it as the creation of God. 
But then when we have the spectacles of Scripture, they teach us, that's right, this is the creation of God. This proclaims his handiwork. And we see it correctly as a testimony to God, to his glory. And so this knowledge that God is creator of all teaches you his power, his wisdom, his glory, that he is worthy of all honor and worship. This knowledge shows how dependent you are on God. It holds you accountable to him to give thanks to the one who made things and made things well. As Paul said to the pagans of Lystra, yet God did not leave himself without witness, for he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. This knowledge is also humbling that God created the heavens and the earth. To sin is to spit in the face of your father. To sin is to bite the hand that feeds you. To sin is to spurn his goodness and to return it with rebellion and hostility. It is to receive so much and to be so ungrateful and rebellious and hostile to the one who has given you a world that you did not work for. You did not create this world that you came into helpless. And God is the one who gave all these things. He, in fact, gave it uh, originally as, as good, as, as nothing wrong. And yet we have returned that good with evil. So consider his work of creation and let it bring you to repentance. We have sinned. We have done wrong to our maker and creator. And this create, creator has provided a way to return to him through Jesus Christ that we might be a new creation. So come to the creator of all through faith in Christ. Be reconciled. Turn from this ingratitude, this sin, and praise your maker. This knowledge also corrects the pride of man, that God created all things. We can't be in the dark anymore, being agnostic or atheist. Corrects the the idea that man is sovereign and sufficient all to himself to make a world that is good and right. <clears throat> Corrects the pride of man that believes that the world is only material, can't be supernatural, because I can't find it under my microscope, so therefore it doesn't exist. Corrects the idea of expressive individualism, that there's no inherent meaning or purpose out there, it only be true to yourself. And that is what makes meaning in this world. You're all on your own to make something of this life. But no, things have been created by God. He has purpose and wisdom and sovereignty. This knowledge also corrects man's idolatry, something that would be very plain to the original readers of this book. The sun, the moon, the stars... All of the good things of this earth ought not to be worshipped. They are mere instruments of God. Do not serve the creature, but rather the creator. So God created the heavens and the earth. Out of nothing, by his word. Second, we note on this day that God created light, separating the day from the night. We find that in verses 3 through 5. God created light. He said, let there be light. And there was light. Uh, 
Uh, he approved of it. He saw that it was good. We'll find that pattern repeated. He separated or distinguished, divided the light from the darkness. He set them in their place. And then he named them, asserting his, his authority over them and, and distinguishing them. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. There was evening and there was morning, the first day. God brings things into existence, and he also sets them in their place, distinguishes and names and approves. Things are made good by God. That is mean, first means that they are not immoral. They're not a source of sin. We can't blame our sin upon the things that God has made, but rather upon the human heart. It also means that they're good and that they're wisely constructed, that they uh, serve his purposes, uh, that they are fit for its place and for its purpose, that he made the world as an order, a system, with different parts working in harmony, and that this order was good and wise. Verse 5 mentions that this was the first day. In fact, the creation of light very fittingly comes on the first day because it's kind of essential for distinguishing a, a day uh, to measure uh, time. There was uh, evening and there was morning the first day. What do you need for evening and morning? You need light and darkness, the darkness and light. Whether a culture marks the beginning of the day at evening or at midnight or at dawn, Every culture that I know of measures a day by light and darkness alternating. And since the original readers, ancient Israel, understood a day began with a period of darkness, they would have understood verses 1 through 2 to describe the first part of day 1. It was that evening where there was no light. Then light was created. There, so there was uh, evening, there was a period of darkness, and then there was morning, period of, of light. And that together was the first day. Literally, it actually is one day. There was evening and there was morning, one day. And from that point forward, it goes second day, third day, fourth day, fifth day. But this is first defining a day. There's darkness and then light, one day. So the beginning of time is the beginning of the first day. It's truly the first day. Now, in the last 200 years, there have been different explanations of the days of creation. I want to very briefly go through this. We have a lot of time as I'm going through. It's one reason why I only took five verses, because there's so much to cover about the doctrine of creation. I want to make sure I have enough time to, to fit it all in. But since we're talking about days, uh, there have been different ways to try to uh, fit the six days of creation with the claims of modern uh, geology and the like. Um, one theory has been the gap theory, um, that between verses 1 through 2, there's a whole other uh, history of the world of millions of years, and fossils being buried, and uh, things being created and then destroyed, and that's why things are formless and void in verse 2. First of all, it's quite speculative. Um, there's nothing in scripture that teaches that it's that way. Uh, but also the first day then would not be the first day. It breaks up the unity of the first day. Uh, there is the day-age theory, the idea that these days are uh, metaphorical in the sense that we might say, like, in my father's day, or, you know, that 
where it doesn't literally mean a day. The word day in English and in Hebrew could be used that way, but not when it's marked by evening and morning, first, second, third, fourth. Um, there's also the idea of the framework uh, hypothesis, the framework uh, idea that the six days is just a literary framework of three days that are then recapitulated in the next three days, they would say. Um, that it's not a sequence of six days and not actually even uh, more about the ideas that are being taught than uh, the literal meaning being historical. Um, again, this is very briefly, uh, but God's work in the commandments as the basis for our path. The fact that he actually made the earth in six days, not that he chose to describe it in six days. Um, and plus, day six, four through six, do not recover, go over again, verse, uh, days one through three. Uh, but the clear pattern here is the six day sequence in the text. There's also an uh, idea called anthropomorphic days, which is uh, similar to the framework hypothesis, except that it's a different framework. Instead of three and three, it more sees it as a literary device of six days, um, but it has similar weaknesses. Uh, and uh, these are not merely God's days, that's the idea of anthropomorphic, that it's God's works being described in human terms, but they are earth days. They're described from the perspective of the earth um, and from the light and darkness that are upon the earth. So it's best to understand these days as literal days marked by alternating periods of darkness and light, uh, like present days are. And much work has been done in interpreting the facts that we find out in the world uh, with this, these truths in mind. Um, but regardless, that seems to be the teaching of Genesis 1. Um, I should say, though, that there are people that hold these other views that don't go then to all the, that don't necessarily believe in evolution, that still hold many of the points of orthodoxy that are even in our denomination. I just think they're wrong. And that's why I present these different perspectives briefly. But what do we learn then from the creation of light? First of all, like I said, it, it helps us understand this progression of days uh, in the creation week. Uh, we also learn that God created light without the sun, moon, and stars. Um, some people see that as a problem. I don't see that much of a problem. Um, it is actually an important point, I think, that God made light before he made the sun, moon, and stars, especially uh, being written in a day uh, where, well, not only in a day, people have done it throughout many ages, people have been tempted to worship the sun and the moon and the stars. But no, God created the light without them. Calvin says on this point, asks the question, why did God not begin with the sun, since it is the instrument by which he gives us light? Now, he did it that way to demonstrate that he uses the things he created in such a way that he could do without them and do everything without drawing help from any source. Why did he create light first? In part, to show that he didn't need the sun. He didn't need the moon. He didn't need the stars. The sun, moon, and stars are instruments that God does not need. In fact, he doesn't need uh, any part of his creation. But even for light, he does not need them. 
while some have worshipped them, instead they declare their maker's praise. And so all that we find that the sun gives us, its light and its heat, and the fact that it nourishes life on the earth, all of that should be ascribed to the goodness and power of God. He is the maker of light. So give glory to God, who is sovereign over all, not in need of anything that he has made. Today, the sun gives you the ability to see things and to observe things, and it gives life to the earth, but it's a mere instrument that God uses and God made. God is the source of life and light, both spiritual and physical. Secondly, about the creation of light, we learn that God gave light, and that enables us to see his works. Uh, it, it, it helped us to, to see everything else that he made, uh, that we might give him praise. And in fact, as he made light, so he also gives spiritual light to us who are in darkness. And the Apostle Paul brings up this point, that just as he brought light out of darkness on the day of creation, uh, so he has given light in our hearts. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, is shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Indeed, it better is a blind man who has light in his heart to understand than the one who can see and yet is blind to the truth. But for those who have both, how much more should we use them both to glorify God, interpreting what we see, what we observe, and being moved to glorify God? So use the light given you to perceive his work, to observe his work, to consider and meditate upon his work, and to give him glory. Imagine if we had no light, all was in darkness, how much we would miss. Do not neglect the gift of sight, all that is laid out before you. And as saints, you're more accountable. You have the light of his word and spirit enabling you to understand what is given both in creation and in scripture. Finally, God gave us day and night, both for your good. Our life now is defined by alternating light and darkness, day and night. It's broken up into periods. Imagine if everything was without any broken up, just always day, and uh, going from one thing to the next. Uh, Gratefully make use of the day and night for work and rest. As Psalm 104 says, You make darkness and it is night, when all the beasts of the forest creep about. When the sun rises, they steal away and lie down in their dens. Man, man goes out to his work, to his labor, until the evening. It is a, a gift to be received, both the day and the night. They are both good. We should therefore avoid sloth, avoid restless unbelief. We should avoid, avoid abusing or misusing or neglecting these gifts. Do not neglect the, the light. Do not abuse the darkness to cover evil. Certainly a lot of different conditions can depend on how we use the day and night. Some rest is appropriate in the day. Some work is appropriate in the night. But... Um, our culture, especially uh, with the technology we have, sometimes has a hard time turning off. And sometimes has a hard time being disciplined in our use of the day and the night. And so to be more precise, avoid being three different characters that are described in Scripture. There is first the sluggard, 
described in Proverbs. A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest. The one who, it, the sluggard is the one who sleeps at harvest. He misses the opportunity that was given him. The sluggard is the one whose hands refuse to labor. And all day he craves and craves. He, he's not disciplined about his cravings, and his hands refuse to work. He's driven by his cravings, not diligent to improve the time, does not seize the day, does not use the night well, lives in a sleepy and impulse-driven pace. Don't be the sluggard. Secondly, don't be the restless, fretful one described in Psalm 127 in Ecclesiastes 5. This one finds it difficult to rest and to sleep, rising up early, going late to bed, but in vain, eating the bread of anxious toil, without satisfaction, without enjoyment. Now, it's true with the curse upon the world that work can be toilsome and hard. There might be health issues that make it hard to rest uh, or to work. But I'm speaking here about the one who is fretful, who does not find satisfaction or enjoyment. As Ecclesiastes says, moreover, all his days he eats in darkness with much vexation and sickness and anger. Instead, gratefully enjoy your toil. That's what Ecclesiastes says. Enjoy the toil God has given you. Enjoy the rest and the pleasures he has given you properly. Rest upon the Lord. And as Jesus said, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. That's a good way to apply the doctrine of the creation of light. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Do not be anxious about tomorrow. To make use of the rest given you, and then rise ready to meet the coming day. The third character to avoid is the one who uses the night for the shameful works of darkness. Whether that's the Proverbs 7 woman or the works of darkness described in Romans 13, Ephesians 5. Some use the night for orgies, for drunkenness, for sexual immorality, for things they would like to hide, where thieves break in and steal. It's not why God created the night, but it's how sinful man perverts his good gifts. How much more should you not use the day for those things? Uh, but you use instead his gifts properly. Instead, appreciate God's gifts of day and night, making hay while the sun shines, enjoying God's gifts properly and at the proper time, knowing your limits, knowing when to stop and rest, and trust God to bless your labors. As Ecclesiastes 10 says, Woe to you, O land, when your child, when your king is a child, and your princes feast in the morning. Happy are you, O land, when your king is the son of the nobility. And your prince's feast at the proper time. To bring things to a conclusion, then we have the first day, first day of creation. God brings time, space, and matter uh, into existence, creates the heavens and the earth out of nothing. Uh, God is the creator of all things, and on that day He created light, beginning to to now form, to shape, and to bring His creation into its. Uh, completed form. He created light, speaking in, into existence, separating day from night, 
creation that we benefit from today. So come to your creator, one who made everything, one who made the light you are using to see me now. Come to him with thanksgiving. Come to him with humility. To him be the glory and thanks forever and ever. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for your work of creation that you have given us that is good, that you have provided us with day and night, you've provided us with light, that you have even shown light into our hearts through Jesus Christ, that we might perceive your works all around us, that in all creation we might see your handiwork, your wisdom, your power, and the fact that we are accountable to you, that we have received many good gifts from you, that even the ungodly have received your goodness, your compassion. We pray that you would indeed shine light upon their hearts as well, that we might together worship you and proclaim and praise your name. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.